Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with John Geddes. He's the head of the department. Hello. Um, John, um, okay, so yeah, we've been talking a lot about Michael Gelder. We have. Um, because it's 50 years yeah. the department's been here. So let's start with that. What, what, what does that mean, that kind of legacy to you? Well, uh, you know, Michael set up the direction of the department, which was so focused on producing new treatments, benefits for patients, uh, with these really strong links through to the university. And that remains the guiding principle of this department. Uh, you know, I think if it's one of the things that really distinguishes this department from um, others elsewhere is that ability to really translate the basic science into new treatments, new procedures. And, of course, a lot of the conversation about um, Michael Gelder was because, unfortunately, you know, he died last year, and we'd spoken about this 50th anniversary coming up, and we were really keen to uh, take note of that. And uh, so it was wonderful that we had that recording of him yesterday. But it, it's, it's so important, of course, that there's been another head of department since uh, Michael, uh, Guy Goodwin, who's, who's talking at this meeting, and he continued and developed exactly the same approach to so this m- wonderful focus on treatment. And the other critical thing is, you know, rather than, f- rather than sort of dichotomizing to the biological and the psychological and the social, the department does both. You know, that's so important. Um, it's always been the case that we've had really good psychologists in the department developing psychological therapies and people looking at uh, pharmacological treatments and other modalities too. And we've just got, um, you know, grants looking at uh, brain stimulation, etc. But, you know, if, if the, the, there are those two key kind of approaches that I think Oxford's known for. And Guy did so much of sort of integrating those two together. And since the time that I've been head of department, I've continued the same approach. It remains a kind of the Oxford strategy. And what's your vision for the next 50 years in terms of... So we know so little about mental you know. illness. We, we treat it so badly. What, what do you think we can achieve in that time? Well, we, we do... I mean, I, I agree with you. The sort of mechanisms have remained uh, rather obscure. But I think there are now real openings and the technology is, is there. Yeah, I've over the years been unconvinced about uh, you know neuroimaging and its its clinical translatability or, or whether it can inform treatments but now it really is getting there you know the kind of resolution that you can get the portability in many cases of the imaging systems and the science and the analysis behind the imaging means that we can directly observe neural activity in the brain and we're beginning to get insight into some of the mechanisms that underlie disorders like depression and working out ways of targeting them more specifically so if you think about the treatments we've got things like cognitive behavior therapy we're still stuck with you know 12 to 16 sessions of fairly fairly generic cbt which is modified according to the, the different conditions or symptom patterns that patients have but we all are quite excited actually about the ability to radically reduce the amount of time taken to produce the therapeutic benefit by targeting more specifically at the mechanism. And I think that is definitely going to happen over the next few years. So when you're thinking about making psychological treatments more um, available and scalable, which of course has always been the, the real difficult thing with psychological therapies, then if you can, if you can concentrate them, make them more focused and more precise, that's a key component 
of actually then being able to scale them up because you can deliver them at scale more easily the more focused they are onto the mechanism. So that's definitely going to be happening. Um, with drug treatments, um, there remains a lot we can do by the same improvements in imaging, looking at biomarkers of treatment response by investigating the effects of treatments of known effects. So things like lithium, for example, we know works and we know reduces suicidality. We don't know how it works because actually we haven't had the investigations with sufficient precision until very recently to be able to measure that. But we can now sort of measure what happens when we uh, give lithium. You know, there are papers looking at stem cell preparations where you can measure what happens in a cell culture derived from a patient with bipolar disorder when you put lithium in. So we can begin to see the, the cellular profile of what happens with lithium and from that, of course, reverse engineer and then develop new targets. At the same time, we're beginning to identify key uh, genetic targets, uh, which we're focusing on. Uh, we're doing some work on the CACNA1C gene, um, which has long been uh, for, you know, known to be associated with a whole range of psychiatric disorders. And working with people like Chaz Bounter at the Structural Genomics Consortium and others, we can begin to characterize the protein products of those genes and work out and actually start coming up with some starting points for new, th for new drug treatments targeted at the mechanism. So those two approaches, I think, are pretty promising as well. And what about prevention and early intervention? What sorts of doing to kind of engage with that agenda? Well, of course, the more you know about mechanism, the more you can uh, rationally approach it in terms of prevention. But we think there's quite a lot you can do already by looking at groups that are particularly susceptible or at risk. Actually, you know, a big target group for us at the moment is young people and adolescents that we know they uh, experience very high rates of depression and anxiety. And people like Willem Kuyken are doing studies in schools of mindfulness with the aim, actually, of preventing. So rather than waiting for the disorders to emerge, the same kind of techniques that can alleviate symptoms might also be preventive and have been found to be successful. So when we're looking at prevention, I think that we're particularly interested in reusing the existing uh, therapeutic uh, approaches we've got tailored, made more efficient, more precise, and then targeting those high-risk groups as preventive strategies. Um, the other thing I think, though, is to think a little bit more broadly about potential ways of improving mental health. And when I was reviewing the interventions and the evidence for interventions for mood disorders, I was struck that there was a lot of evidence for psychological therapies there's quite a lot of evidence for pharmacological therapies the other big area actually there's a lot of um, work on is exercise and physical activity and yet we know very little about the specific effects of physical activity on uh, mood or anxiety and that seems to me to be a very easy target uh, because we now have again ways of investigating that much more uh, thoroughly and begin to work out you know, what sorts of um, activity are going to be effective for individuals? Because I, I actually think that the way that people engage with those treatments is going to vary depending on their own preferences and what works for them. 
You know, um, Andre, you and I will remember working many years ago with Monty Don and looking at the therapeutic effects of gardening. And for me, that's the same way in. You know, it's, it's a kind of, it's one of those interventions that people find that could be very preventive. What we don't know at the moment is how an individual who wants to, you know, they might have had some anxiety or depressive symptoms. They may want to improve their resilience to the depressive, to the emergence of depressive symptoms. We'd actually know no individual knows what's going to work for them. So when you go into Waterson's, you see rows and rows of self-help books. You know, bird therapy, um, novel therapy. These are all really useful for some people, but no one knows what's going to work for them. So that's the same kind of... That, that's the other approach we've got to get into over the next few years, is begin to work out... I have no doubt they, they work for some people, probably by the same mechanisms. We need to work out how to map an individual onto the right intervention for them. So it's all about personalisation. Yeah. And then finally, what about... I was really struck by the conversation yesterday around um, most of what we do in mental health, there's no evidence for, and there's a huge amount of evidence for stuff that we don't currently do. What about implementation? Is that your responsibility? Yeah, it is. Um, because I think that the, the design of the intervention has to be informed by the feasibility of implementing it so actually if you know there's there's actually no point if you think you're creating a therapy of designing a therapy that no one's ever going to be able to implement um, so the discipline for a translational academic so someone who's trying to take a basic science advance and build a therapy out of it is to make something that will be deliverable at scale in a health service. So I think that's definitely our responsibility. Of course, academics can have major input to the whole range and the whole kind of chain of implementation. And a lot of us are engaged in, you know, evidence-based practice in general, the development of evidence-based guidelines, training, all those things that actually improve the quality and implementation of health services. Yeah, it's absolutely what clinical academics should be doing. It's great talking to you, John. And you, Andrew. And you. Thank you.